Welcome back to the Comfortably Hungry podcast, where yesterday's dinner is tomorrow's history. If you're a peckish person who is curious about the history of food and drink, then you're in the right place. I'm Sam Bilton, a food historian, writer and presenter, and each season I will be joined by some hungry guests to discuss a variety of topics centred around a specific theme. As a former supper club host, I'm always intrigued to know what people like to eat. So to whet everyone's appetites, I've invited my guests to contribute a dish to the season's virtual potluck supper, inspired by today's topic. In season two, my guests and I will be exploring our complex relationship with chocolate to coincide with the release of my latest book, The Philosophy of Chocolate, published by the British Library. Today is the 2nd of November, unless of course you are listening to this episode after this date. In the Christian calendar, it is known as All Souls Day, and in Mexico specifically, Dia de los Muertos, or Day of the Dead. But as we shall see, it is far from a mournful occasion. Today my guest is Maite Gomez-Reon, an educator, writer and cook who explores the connection between art and culinary history with Art Bites. She has recently curated two exhibitions at LA Plaza Cucina in Los Angeles, May's Past, Present and Future and the Legacy of Cacao. When you have a moment, do check out Maite's podcast with actor Eva Longoria, Hungry for History. Today, we're going to look at the role chocolate plays in the Day of the Dead celebrations. Welcome to the podcast, Maite. Uh, Before we get into our discussion about chocolate and the Day of the Dead, can you tell me a little bit more about your work with Art Bites? Thank you for having me, Sam. I'm really excited to chat with you today. Um, So yes, with Art Bites, I explore the connections between art history and food history, and I work with museums all over the U.S., weaving culinary history through art and then holding cooking classes inspired by history. So I do that. I lecture. um, The podcast that I do with Eva Longoria, we focus on the origins of dishes and ingredients native to Latin America with a focus on Mexico. And yeah, that's what I do. (laughs) It's a lot of fun always incorporating art and food in some way. Lovely. The Day of the Dead symbols, like the colourful calaveras and or skulls, as we probably would know them in this country, have become increasingly incorporated into British Halloween celebrations over the years as sort of the popularity of Mexican food has increased. But can you explain exactly what the Day of the Dead is to our listeners over here in the UK? Uh, does it have pagan roots or with ancestor worship or was it uh, simply a case of the Mesoamericans adopted or merged their own rites and festivals with Christian feast days? Well, it's actually a little bit of both. Day of the Dead, Dia de los Muertos, it's Mexico's, one of Mexico's most popular celebrations, and it is the most joyous celebration, which is so ironic because it's about death, but it's really the concept that life and death are one. 
you can't have one without the other. So essentially celebrating the dead is a celebration of, of life. Um, so if we want to go back, the roots of the celebration go back about 3,000 years, and they go to rituals honoring the dead in pre-colonial times, you know, in Mesoamerica. So even then, death was seen as a very much an integral part of life. And upon dying, the souls of the deceased was, were said to have traveled to this underworld, sort of nine levels in the underworld, this place called Mictlan. And they were guided by a hairless dog. Um, Shalok Squinkly is the name of this hairless dog. And it was just very innocent hairless dog. And we see a lot of this in art. It's one of the most common funerary, you know, objects in funerary art is this dog. Um, guided by this dog, you get to this, you know, underworld and people lived these wonderful lives. It was sort of just a different way of living. So these celebrations honored the dead and they involved feasting and it's sort of feasting like you would feast, have a feast at a, at a wedding. So once we get to the Spanish conquest and Christianity was introduced into Mexico, this is when it sort of merges with the All Souls Day that was being celebrated in Europe. Um, so oftentimes in Mesoamerica, they had around the fall, when everything starts dying, they celebrated the dead. So it was very, I guess, serendipitous that the dates sort of worked, you know, together. In Europe, around the year 750 or so of the Common Era, the church instituted November 1st as All Saints Day and then November 2nd as All Souls Day, basically celebrating the souls of the of the Catholic. And that in and of itself was also merging a pagan celebrations that were happening in Europe pre-Christian era. So when the Spaniards colonized Mexico, they were trying to convert everybody, of course, to Christianity. And these two celebrations sort of merged. So just to clarify, Dia de los Muertos, that's the 2nd of November, correct? Exactly. Dia de los Muertos, it's celebrated November 1st and November 2nd. November 1st is to honor children, right. children, and November 2nd honors adults. It sounds like Mexicans have quite a different view of death to Europeans. It's not something generally in Europe or in the UK that we celebrate. It's a sad thing, death, but Mexicans, maybe not so much. Maybe not so much. I mean, they're, of course, you know, everyone is human and everybody feels that, you know, pain. But in this particular time, it's a way of honoring the deceased and honoring their memories. And it's a joyous occasion. You're not supposed to cry because the tears can make the road slippery for the souls of the deceased. So it's a very different concept in that it is a joyous occasion. And in, you know, indigenous beliefs that there was, of course, this life after death, but there was no hell. So this is very different than, you know, Christianity. And I actually, you know, I'm a product of a Catholic school education and was instilled in, you know, there is heaven and hell, but there is no hell. 
in oh. indigenous culture. It was just a continuation of, of life. It's death is not a punishment. So I think that that is the main difference. And it's not about, you know, it's not Halloween and it's which you, you it's it's spooky. It doesn't have that spooky, ghoulish attitude because there it is there is no punishment and there is no hell. And I think that that is one of the main differences. So what form do the celebrations take then? You know, it has like a carnival atmosphere, doesn't it almost? It is. It's very much uh, it's very much a celebration. Most celebrations take place in the home. Um, people will set up an altar in the home and it's sort of a, an altar with different levels. And also, you know, there is the, the aspect of the cemeteries and each altar has four important elements to it. Um, so this earth elements to it. And this is something that's a very important part of it. So there is the representation of earth. And the representation of Earth takes place in the form of bread, um, the Day of the Dead bread. Um, of course, mole, which we'll talk about, and tamales. So these foods represent um, Earth. Um, in pre-colonial, you know, times, they would have amaranth seeds, and am- now we see a lot of sugar skulls. Um, sugar was introduced post-conquest, so originally it was amaranth skulls. And then there is the um, the wind element, air element. And we see this in the papel picado, which is this sort of cut paper that's very, very ephemeral. It's just different colors of paper. And this symbolizes the fertility of life and the union between life you know, and death. We also have incense to clean um, evil spirits, to ward off evil spirits, to welcome the souls of the deceased. There is also the element of fire. And this is represented with marigolds, that really bright yellow orange flower that blooms in the fall and winter. And it is said to be that color because it holds on to all of the color and the sun of spring and summer. And it's also a very fragrant flower. Not, it almost smells, smells a little bit bitter. Um, it doesn't, it's not fragrant like a rose, but it's, it has a, a little bit of a, of a bitter, you know, scent. And this smell also sort of guides the, the, the way. So it lights the way and it guides the way. And then there are also candles um, to sort of light the way. So we have the earth represented by the food. We have the wind represented by the cut paper and the incense. We have the fire represented by the marigolds and the candles. And then we have water, um, which is representative of, with, with, by pulque, which is an alcoholic you know, beverage. It's, it's a fermented beverage. Also, maybe it's some tequila or, you know, something that the that the deceased would have liked to enjoy this sort of party atmosphere and chocolate. Um, so a cup of hot chocolate, which I have one right here, a little cup Ooh. of hot chocolate. Um, and that represents water. Um, and this is, of course, to quench the spirit's uh, thirst. So all of these um, um, elements are seen in these Day of the Dead altars. Where whether it's at home or in a cemetery. So is the food designed to be for the dead and then the living get to consume it later? 
Yes, it is exact. That is exactly what it's for. Everything is laid out and we have the smell of the foods, um, the, you know, of course, the aroma of the flowers, the candles to light the way. And it's all laid out for people to come and then to enjoy for the for the souls to actually arrive, be welcomed and enjoy. And then the living partake in these favorite foods in this celebration. So why is chocolate in particular so important to the celebrations? Well, chocolate is something that was consumed in celebrations of the death, even before the conquest. And I mentioned the the sculptures of the hairless dogs, a lot of terracotta sculptures of these hairless dogs are one of the most popular funerary arts that that is available. But also uh, vessels, especially Mayan vessels, these ceramic vessels, the deceased were buried with. So uh, Mayas were buried with vessels of hot chocolate to consume in the afterlife. And chocolate was a very bitter drink. This was before the addition of sugar and made with water, prepared with water, um, because it was before dairy was was introduced. Chocolate has been something that has been found in funerary context for hundreds, if not thousands of, of years. And it is native to this part of the world. It is also, well, it's native to the Americas. It's actually probably native to Ecuador, but it was the Mayans that really developed this whole concept of drinking chocolate. And it's also so fragrant and the smell of this chocolate lures the souls to their families, to their graves. Is it just the chocolate or is it anything else that is in the chocolate? I know the Spanish would have introduced old world spices, but the Mayans were making chocolate with things like vanilla and achiote and chilies, of course. Does that sort of add to the sort of aroma of chocolate? Absolutely. Absolutely. So yes, it would have been a very different drinking experience as the one that we're familiar with today. So the the cacao seeds would have been ground on something called a a metate, which is this volcanic, sort of a a volcanic uh, stone. Um, And it would have been ground with spices like achiote, which is one of the spices that's native to the Americas. Also vanilla, which is also very, very bitter. Chiles, which, you know, gave it an, a, a, another, you know, flavor. And sometimes maybe it would have been sweetened with a little bit of honey or a little bit of agave, but definitely water. And this would have um, added to the fragrance, to the to the whole drinking experience, definitely. Now, when we talked initially before we did this interview, you mentioned drinking chocolate being made with the water the deceased have been bathed in. I hadn't come across that, so you have to tell me more. (laughs) Yes. So I I came across this and I was like, wait a minute, how have I never come across this? This is just so bizarre and seems so unhygienic, really. Like, how would that have been, you know, come across? Um, So there is this man, this anthropologist, um, Germán Argueta, Germán Argueta is his name. He's an anthropologist and he writes about, you know, chronicles and legends of day of, de- of the day of the dead. And this is a legend that he came across somewhere in Yucatan Peninsula that maybe he saw this or he heard the story of somebody making 
chocolate with the water that the deceased was bathed in in order to be closer to this person. I realized after I told you this, that this was very much probably a legend and not the reality. Okay. Well, I mean, to be fair, some of the stuff that the uh, conquistadors came out with, you know, the the documents that we certainly rely on as our history of the Americas before they were discovered by the Spanish. Some of the the tales in there, I think, are pretty far-fetched. Is that just propaganda that these the Spanish were putting out there to try and persuade everyone how uncouth the uh, locals were? I don't know. It's very hard to say. When we look at a culture through an observer's perspective, through the conqueror's perspective, yeah, they're they're depicting them as barbarians, right? So some things, you know, were they making pozole, this, you know, huamini stew with the limbs of sacrificial victims? Yeah, I'd heard Maybe. that as well. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, you know, so, so it was definitely a different culture. They were not cannibals. When we take these sources as facts, it gets a little, it gets a little complicated, right? But, yeah. you know, sometimes that's all we have because that so much was destroyed. So much was destroyed. And therefore, you're, what you're left with is, I guess there is a certain amount of bias there. It sounds bizarre making chocolate with water that your deceased relatives have bathed in. But then equally, if it was designed to be closer to the relative, maybe not so much. Maybe somebody did it once. I mean, you know, who knows? Maybe, and it became yeah. this myth. Quite striking. Definitely. So another dish that is associated with the Day of the Dead celebrations is, of course, Mole Poblano. Professor Jeffrey Pilcher notes in his book, Kebivan los tamales, that mole poblano, with its elaborate ingredients, supposedly represented the gastronomic counterpart of the celestial ceiling fresco, or the recursive musical food, which I quite like that uh, quote. So I guess we ought to start by explaining exactly what mole poblano is. Yes, I mean, mole poblano is the ultimate Baroque dish, right? It, it is so fantastic. The word Mole is Nahual, which is the, the language of the Mexicas, you know, the Aztecs, Nahual for sauce. So uh, actually, mole comes from muli, which is Nahual for sauce. Um, so they were making mole, a type of mole, in pre-colonial Mexico by grinding chiles on the same metate, this you know, volcanic stone, um, chiles with other ingredients, uh, maybe tomatoes, uh, herbs, different ingredients, and making a sauce. And even when we think of guacamole, it's an avocado sauce, literally is what that is, right? So that's where the, the word comes from. And so there are hundreds of different types of moles in Mexico. Probably the most famous one is the mole poblano. Poblano meaning that it's from Puebla, the, the, the state of Puebla in Mexico. Where the conquistadors arrived is in the state of Veracruz, on the coast of Veracruz. And the state of Puebla is right in between Veracruz and Mexico City, where they were ultimately arriving. So it's this a state and the city is also named after the state, the capital of Puebla was essentially getting first dibs on everything that was coming in from the old world, including 
all of the spices, every sort of ingredient. But for the case of of mole, um, spices that were coming from the old world that have all that had already arrived in Europe from the Middle East, from India, from Asia. Um, so essentially, we see these ingredients, including cinnamon and almonds and cloves and sugar. All of these ingredients were making their way into Mexico City, but first making a pit stop in Puebla. And convents were the places that were getting all of the good stuff first. So this is where Mole Poblano happens for the first time. And so there are many myths related to who made Mole Poblano first. So essentially, Mole, this type of Mole that we're referring to now, Mole Poblano, is a combination of old world and new world ingredients. So the new world ingredients include chiles that are ground in this grinding, you know, stone. And, and sometimes it's three or four different types of dry, dried chiles that are grind together with the addition of almonds and cinnamon and cloves and herbs and apples and raisins and what else is in it? Plantains. I mean, there's all sorts of ingredients that are ground together, tomatoes, onion, garlic, to form um, this paste. In the case of mole poblano, we see the addition of chocolate. Um, so this is what makes it the mole poblano, this one of the most famous dishes actually of Mexico. And it really shows the fusion that is Mexican cuisine. It really is. And Mexican people. Right? We're a combination of old and new. And we see this in this dish. Now, how it emerged, who made it first is a mystery. Um, but it did emerge in colonial convents of the 17th century. And there are a number of, of legends as to you know who made it. All of them really point to the convent of Santa Rosa in Puebla. And one of them is attributed to a nun, Sor Andrea de la Asuncion. So it's this one nun that was apparently a wonderful cook and a bishop was going to visit the convent on a Sunday. And she started putting all of these elements together. This bishop didn't really like spicy food or he didn't like his food too spicy. Um, so she ended up adding two tablets of chocolate to it to lower the heat. That is one of the theories. There are many theories in the particular case of the, this, her recipe. She had four different kinds of chiles. It had pepper and almonds and peanuts, anise seeds. Everything was ground together with the addition of two tablets of chocolate. It was a triumph. Another one was that there was a, a viceroy that was coming to visit and they needed to add a little extra pizzazz to the mole. And the, there was the addition of chocolate. Moles have existed, you know, pre-colonial Mexico for millennia. But this particular mole that people associate with, with Puebla or the one with chocolate is definitely a colonial Baroque you know, dish. And in Baroque, you mentioned the symphony, um, the, the, the cathedral, you know, ceilings that has all sorts of, you know, indigenous um, elements with the, you know, elements that were coming from the Baroque Europe. And so it's all of this just charged, you know, gold and color. And it's that 
in this form of flavor, with flavor and with ingredients. So it is actually my favorite food. When I was thinking of, oh, what would be your last meal? Mole, 100%, mole poblano. Oh, really? Okay, that's interesting. Do you think the chocolate was added because it was a very valuable ingredient to add? We were using spices in Europe at this time as a form of bling, if you like. It was to where, you mm-hmm. know, more highly spiced your food, you know, the richer you basically were. Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. And even when I was uh, referring to the chocolate that was, you know, dignitaries were buried with, Mayan dignitaries were buried with these uh, vessels of chocolate. Chocolate was very expensive. You know, chocolate was only something that was consumed only as a drink for hundreds of years and only by the very wealthy. I mean, and even in in Mexico, pre-colonial Mexico, there was no money. There was no currency. Everything was on the barter system. And if you had cacao seeds, you could buy a lot of stuff. Um, So when the Spaniards came, they equated chocolate, cacao with with money. And and that's, you know. For hundreds of years, it was consumed by the aristocracy in Mexico. And there really is no evidence that they were making adding chocolate to their mole because it was it was a drink. So this is definitely what had elevated this dish. Diana Kennedy points out that the mole recipes in La Cochinera Poblana, published in Pueblo in 1877, I think she says there's seven recipes and none contain chocolate. I actually have that that copy of that book, the, the book Cocina. Ah. This is the 1913 edition, um, and it has about 20 different recipes for mole, and none of them include chocolate either. Um, so, but that's that is not to say that people weren't making mole no. with chocolate. Yeah. I don't know when we first see it published in cookbooks. Um, the first cookbook was published in Mexico in 1931. So which is quite late considering the long, you know, history. This yeah. is 300 years post-conquest. Um, but yes, yeah, so people were probably used making it at home. It just didn't, I'm not sure where it appears in print for the first time with chocolate. And we should point out here, it, we're not talking about a lot of chocolate, are we? It's it's it is added like almost like a spice or you know a, an accent ingredient. It's not not talking about something that's super sweet. Yeah, yeah, no, no, no. It's not super sweet at all. It's it, a good mole. It's perfectly balanced. It's a little sweet, a little savory. Um, yes, it's not like you're adding a bar of super sweet chocolate to it. And and Mexican chocolate is is you know quite grainy. And quite, but not so much the the commercial chocolate um, is quite sweet, but the 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 type of chocolate that's used for mole is not. Yes, so for the listeners, yes, this is not like a weird chile chocolate, like sweet. Like, no, this is a very a, a very elegant um, and very interesting uh, sauce. What would you recommend we use for the chocolate element? Can we just get away with dark chocolate that you can buy in a supermarket or? Do we need to buy unsweetened chocolate? I think it was better if you could find unsweetened uh, dark chocolate. But definitely you you don't want to throw a Hershey bar or a Cadbury bar in or anything like that. I would say. Perish the thought. 
Yes, no, some some dark uh, dark chocolate, and there are so many variations. I mean, this mole poblano is specific to the state of Puebla, but Oaxaca in southern Mexico is also uh, makes so many different kinds of moles. They're known as the land of seven moles, even though there are many more than seven moles. Just that there are seven that are the most popular, and uh, the red mole and the black mole also include chocolate, but very not not all moles include. Chocolate chocolate no so what would what meat would you use with mole typically traditionally it was turkey and you know thanksgiving in the u.s is coming up and it's a great thing to do with leftover turkey but when i make it at home i use i poach chicken um, and then put the sauce over poached chicken typically how it is you know served now in mexico it's with chicken so i was looking up a few recipes and actually you do you kind of cook the chicken separately, don't you? You poach the chicken and then you use like the stock to make the mole. Is that correct? Yes. It's very laborious, very, very laborious, which is, and it's something that is used because it is so laborious, used for special occasions, for weddings, for day of the dead altars. It is something that's not an everyday, you know, dish to make at home. So we come to the part of the podcast that I really, really like, because this is where I get to find out what you're bringing to the season's virtual feast. So what dish have you chosen today? Okay, I have a couple of different things. So I have a cup of hot chocolate with water. And so this is a a mug that I got from, from Puebla a couple of years ago when I was there. And I should just say to everyone, you can't see because we're recording this on Zoom, but it is a a beautiful mug. uh, And I'm very envious, actually, because I would like a mug of coffee that size. Right. (laughs) It's had coffee earlier. So it's a blue and white uh, ceramic mug with um, with with colored, uh, colorful flowers. Uh, Mexican chocolate made with water. Um, this is the type of chocolate that would be found on altars. And then I have some Day of the Dead bread. Oh, so wow. I have a couple of different breads. Um, pan de muerto is what it's called, which literally translates to dead bread or bread of the dead. Um, and this is bread was introduced, wheat was introduced post conquest. And there was something similar in medieval Spain called pan de animas, the soul's bread. So this one is around, you know, bread, uh, which is representative of the cycle of life. And then you have on the top this sort of round area, which is representative of the skull of the deceased. So it basically it's a round loaf around roll rather with a circular like a skull and then it has these strips coming out of it which represent bones so it's sort of the skull and crossbones on a round loaf which is representative of the cycle of life the loaf that i have the pan de muerto that i have is sprinkled with uh, sesame seeds which is also an element in mole sometimes they have sugar um but this particular one has sesame seeds and the bread it's a basically a brioche bread a lot of bakers came to mexico post conquest and bread baking is is a, is a very wonderful tradition in mexico as well there are hundreds of different types of bread pan de muerto is a brioche bread 
that has a little bit of orange blossom water to it. And sometimes it has anise. So it's a very uh, soft, very delicious uh, bread that is used, that is representative, again, of life. And that is used to be dipped in the hot chocolate. Excellent. And it's so delicious. One other thing that I wanted to mention that is served um, in Day of the Dead Altars is atole. Atole is a corn-based drink. And corn is representative of life. You know, it's the life force of the Americas, right? It needs stock, corn stocks need full sun to grow. Chocolate, on the other hand, the cacao plant is very delicate when it's first growing. It needs a lot of shade. Um, so it's sort of the opposite. So corn represents life. And in a sense, chocolate is representative of death. So this cup of chocolate atole has both elements of life and death in this one drink, which is so, I think, incredible. Is it like a liquor atole or is it like a beer? Atole, it's just uh, the masa, like uh, the, the corn flour is right. added to, to milk. Um, and it's sort of a thick corn milk. And some of it, you can make it by adding, uh, baking hot chocolate and adding this masa to it. Um, and it's basically like a very thick, uh, earthy hot chocolate with this sort of corn element to it. So it's a representative of life and, and death. So what is next on the horizon for you? Well, we start um, season two of Hungry for History, the podcast we start uh, next at the beginning of the year. And I am in the process of curating an exhibit for La Plaza Cocina in Los Angeles on a woman named Josefina Velasquez de Leon. And she was an incredible uh, woman who between the 1930s and 60s had a cooking school, a TV show, a radio show. She published over 150 cookbooks, including regional um, books. Uh, she traveled all over the country publishing uh, cookbooks. And then she died and she sort of disappeared. Everybody kind of forgot about her. And Diana Kennedy, who you mentioned, she sort of she mentions Josefina in her first cookbook, um, and, and Diana Kennedy is now known as the as the kind of pioneer of regional Mexican food. But um, Josefina was doing it first, so I find it you know fascinating. I found out about her a few years ago when I was doing some research at the library, and I remember I called my mom afterwards asking her, "Who is this woman?" And she was like, "Oh yeah, your grandmother used to take cooking classes from her. She used to talk about her all the time." I was like, wait, who is this person? Um, so I'm just have become obsessed with with her, and so I'm in the process of curating an exhibition of her work, which opens at the beginning of December. So that has been the main, my main, you know, focus. And, and then I have classes um, as well. So uh, always, always a lot um, happening. But right now I'm, I'm quite excited about this exhibition. 
And thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you, Sam. Such a pleasure. Thank you to Maite Gomez-Rayon for joining me today. And apologies to Maite and you listeners for my shocking Spanish pronunciation. You can find links to Maite's website, Art Bites, social media and the Hungry for History podcast in the show notes, along with a host of reading suggestions to help you discover more about the Day of the Dead celebrations and Mexico's culinary history. I've posted my own recipe for pandan huertos on Substack and will be trying my hand at Mole Poblano this weekend, so keep an eye on my social media channels to see how I get on. If you'd like to find out more about my work, pop along to sambilton.com, where you will find details on my books on gingerbread, saffron and chocolate, as well as the forthcoming events I am speaking at. You may also want to subscribe to the Comfortably Hungry newsletter on Substack, which includes recipes and more detailed notes from the show. If you have any questions relating to this season's theme, you can leave a comment in the chat section on the Comfortably Hungry Substack page or tag me on social media. And thank you for listening to this episode. If you enjoyed it, please let me know on Instagram, threads or Twitter at Mrs. Bilton. That's with two S's. And if you really love this episode, please rate and review it on Apple Podcasts. It really will help other listeners discover Comfortably Hungry. I'll be back soon with another chocolate podcast, but until then, take care. This podcast was created, researched, produced, recorded and edited by me, Sam Bilton, with music and sound effects provided by zapsplat.com. Additional music provided by Blue Panda. Blue Panda.